Welcome to the Grace Long Beach podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is Luke 23, 32 through 38. Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the Skull, they nailed him to a cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. The crowd watched and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself, if he really is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers mocked him, too, by offering him a drink of sour wine. They called out to him, If you are the King of the Jews, save yourself. A sign was fastened above him with these words, This is the King of the Jews. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, you are dismissed to King's Quest while the rest of us are seated. It is my distinct privilege and honor to be introducing this guy to you this morning. Many of you already know Brandon Cook. He is the pastor of vision and teaching over at Long Beach Christian Fellowship. And Brandon and Becca and Long Beach Christian Fellowship in general have been um, incredibly supportive and incredibly good friends to us at Grace, especially in the last few years. So it's our honor to have him here this morning to bring a word. Um, I know Brandon to be a true man, an authentic man, and he is also an incredible storyteller. So thank you, Brandon, for any work that you've done to prepare a message for us this morning. And Grace, will you join me in welcoming him to our stage, please? Thank you. Good morning. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. I'm so honored to be here. I feel a little naked this morning because some of you know me really well, so I feel a little exposed already, but I feel very grateful. Hi. Good morning. I was called a hipster this morning. That made me feel great. I can still hold that light, maybe. And uh, Marsha Dobler and I were talking. Thank you for that beautiful prayer. And we were talking. She was concerned it might be a little too heavy. And... Sometimes following Jesus has some heaviness to it, right? And that's okay. So I think what we're going to talk about today is an invitation into some heaviness, but also to joy. And I want to ask a question as we begin, and just bear with me. How many of you in life find yourself asking, is this all there is? Like, is there more? Yeah. And maybe, you know, it's a pretty respectable crowd looking around. I'm imagining there's a conversation at points of, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the best I can. I'm not perfect, but I'm dutiful. Like I would ask you, how many of you are dutiful? Like you do your best, you do your best at work. You know you're not perfect, but you give it your best with your families, with your kids. And in your spiritual life, perhaps there's, you do your best. You do your best to engage some sort of spiritual practice, and yet you sometimes find yourself like me saying, is this all there is, God? 
Is there more? Anybody with me in that? I know, I believe Jesus asked the same question. In his humanity, that experience, that longing that we all have for more. And how do we, in the midst of these busy lives, paying our taxes and going to work and changing diapers, how do we honor that longing for more that is within us, that's part of our humanity? You look at Jesus, he had that longing, but there's also a reality that somehow Jesus was continually filled with the life of God, such that that longing for more was satisfied. One time a woman comes and just touches the, the hem of his garment, and we read that power, physical and spiritual power, went out of him and filled this woman. So that Jesus was always, somehow, that longing for more was always being satisfied and filling him up to overflowing. And I think part of the reason for that is that Jesus was constantly choosing more, choosing life, such that he could be filled. I mean, there's this reality that Jesus was incarnated as the Son of God. I think there's also a reality that he was always being incarnated because he was always choosing the life of God and being filled to overflowing. And so what I want to talk to you about this morning is forgiveness, which is at the center of Jesus' teaching, and it's certainly how in our lives we experience or we, we satisfy in some way that longing for more. But I want to talk to you about forgiveness this morning maybe in a different way than we normally talk about forgiveness. I want to talk about our need to forgive reality. That you and I are called not only to forgive others, but to forgive reality itself. To forgive reality for being what it is. To forgive reality. Now, do you think that forgiving reality will involve forgiving others? Absolutely. But it's an even bigger conversation than that. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross in Luke 23, as we read this morning, we hear him say, Father, forgive them. But let me tell you, that last 24 hours of Jesus' life, he was forgiving reality on every side. Forgiving Judas, seating Judas at the seat of honor at the Last Supper. Constantly releasing forgiveness over all of reality for being what it is. And so, um, just think about the reality of life. Reality is harsh, isn't it? I was just talking to a friend just five minutes ago about the sickness of his friend and just the harsh reality, realities that leave you speechless. What can be said? How can we not be offended with sickness, with death, with the realities that we see all around us? I was driving in my car recently with my wife, Becca, and I had this, I looked over at her and for just a moment I had this kind of float above the car disembodied, timeless moment where it just struck me. I don't know why it struck me, but it did. I'm going to lose her, or she's going to lose me. This doesn't go on forever. So just consider that even our most precious longings, our longing for love, even love itself, the most beautiful thing we long for, is not safe, will cause us to experience pain. How can that be the nature of reality? That even our most precious longing will lead us into loss. I was dropping my daughter Charlotte off at school and um, we had this ritual. I help her get on her backpack, I walk her across. Well, one day she says to me, recently she says, 
Dad, can I run across the street by myself? And I was kind of startled. I said, of course. And I helped her get her backpack on. I said, I love you. Bye. Pat her on the back. She runs across the street. She said, love you, Dad. Bye. And I smiled watching my daughter cross the street. And then I got in my car and I wept. I wept because I love her so much and it hurts. And of course, all I want for her is to not just cross the street, but sail around the world, live an adventure, and the pain of letting go is loss. How can that be the nature of reality? So you and I always have a choice before us. We, we always choose either the pain of sacrifice or the pain of regret. That's it. And the pain of sacrifice is the pain of forgiveness, forgiving others, forgiving reality for being what it is. Or we choose not to forgive, and then we have the pain of regret, of locking our heart away so that it won't hurt. But it hurts all the more. Those are our choices, the pain of sacrifice, the way of love, or the pain of unforgiveness, the pain of regret. So, yeah, this is heavy to talk about reality. People get sick. People get cancer. And, you know, let me tell you, I don't believe for a second that God is up there, you know, bestowing blessing and making people get sick. All that sort of God in the heavens, you know, blessing and, or smiting people, all that theology needs to be done away with. But at the same time, what does it say about reality? And therefore, what does it say about God that he allows all this? That he allows this reality with its, with its sharp edges to be manifest all around us. So Jesus on the cross Luke 23, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is Jesus. This is God himself once again being emptied out for the sake of the world. In Philippians 2, we read that Jesus, that God emptied himself out in the incarnation, that Jesus emptied himself to become man. It's big, the word kenosis in Greek, it means to empty, emptying, the pouring out of oneself. But let me tell you, Jesus was continually incarnating himself into this way of God. He was continually forgiving others. And here on the cross, pouring himself out again. Because how many of you experience that forgiveness is a pouring out of yourself? Anybody? Right? <laughs> Can feel like a great emptying. And Jesus, till the very end, till his last breath, was forgiving reality for being what it is, even as he forgave those who were crucifying him till the very end. So Richard Rohr says, to accept reality is to forgive reality for being what it is almost day by day and sometimes even hour by hour. We might say minute by minute. But such a practice creates, creates patient and humble people to forgive reality. So to carry the life of God around you as followers of Jesus will mean forgiving reality and refusing to be offended. I always think of Mary. You know, think of Mary, the mother of Jesus, how she had to forgive reality to literally carry the life of God within her. People whispering about her, that slut, that immoral woman. And she had to continually forgive that in order to carry the life of God. Even, you know, again, Jesus himself in Gethsemane right before his crucifixion, I don't want to do this, nevertheless, not what I would have, but what God would have. He fully entered into reality. On the cross, he refuses the wine that was dull his senses because his senses, there are moments where we must fully enter into 
reality and make peace with what reality requires. And Jesus himself opens his hands and lets go of his demand, his desire that reality be different. So I'd like to explore with you for a few moments how we could live lives forgiving reality in order to be people of incredible joy, even in the midst of pain. Well, I think the scripture makes it clear that the opposite of forgiveness is not just unforgiveness, but that the opposite of forgiveness is judgment. The opposite of unforgiveness is judgment. And judgment is a way that you and I for a moment escape the pain of reality. Doesn't it feel good to judge others? Oh, it feels cool. It's kind of soothing, right? I mean, think about it. You're in traffic. Someone cuts you off. You blankety blank. Doesn't it feel good in that moment to assuage the pain of being cut off by judging another person? I think about in life. Someone offends you. A friend betrays you. Isn't it easier to enter into judgment of that person than it is to look with the lens of compassion? To see them as a hurting human being? Absolutely. Judgment is a way that for a moment we, or I'll speak for myself, that I escape the pain of reality. And judgment has two movements to it. There is an internal movement of judgment and there's an external movement. There's a movement within inside, our, inside ourselves and there's a movement outside of ourselves to others in the world. So I want to start by talking about the external movement of judgment, which we see all the time in the world around us. And actually, Jesus being crucified is the culmination of this movement of judgment uh, that leads to his death and crucifixion. The external movement of judgment looks like this. Starts with comparison. Then it moves and it blooms into offense, being offended. And then it culminates in scapegoating other people. Let's start with comparison. You know, as human beings, it's just natural for us to compare. But we also live in a culture now where we are encouraged to compare at every point. Think about social media. All these images we see, these perfectly picked, curated, edited images of people having, living happy lives. I always, I always think I could make a bunch of money. Probably not, but I think it's a good idea if we created an honest Facebook and a timer would go off and whatever is happening, you had to, at that moment, take a picture or type out exactly what you just said to your wife. Wouldn't that be refreshing? An honest Facebook. But instead, we live in this world where social media gives us these perfect curated images, and so we're invited to always be in comparison. Social media is steroids to our human penchant for comparison. The uh, Pittsburgh School of Medicine wrote this in a report. Exposure to highly idealized representations of peers on social media elicits feelings of envy and the distorted belief that others lead happier, more successful lives. They're, they've done studies. You know, it's proven that social media leads to this anxiety. The comparison, living a life of comparison leads to anxiety, and then it leads to a life of offense. Because think about it. Why not me? Why are they taking a picture on the beach? Why not me? Why do they have that? Why not me? We're, and our culture invites us to live in this comparison and therefore to live a life of offense. Now, Jesus was constantly interrupting comparison, just nipping this whole cycle of judgment at the bud. There's a story in the Gospel of John where Peter and, John are having, uh, and Jesus are having a conversation. Peter says, he looks at John and he says, 
Oh, what about him? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus said, basically, you worry about yourself. Let, let him do his thing. You take care of yourself. Basically, he just interrupts that whole comparison conversation. No, don't go there, Peter. Don't step into that. Because comparison leads to offense. And then when offense becomes fully born, it leads to scapegoating. Now, scapegoating is blaming something or someone else. Scapegoating is blaming something or someone else. It's a way that we relieve our own anxiety by transferring it on to someone else. Now, this is strange, but in ancient cultures, they would literally, many cultures would take a goat and they would do a ritual and they would ritualistically transfer the guilt and the shame of the community onto the animal and send it out into the wilderness to be killed as a way of ceremonially cleansing, purging the communal conscience. Now, that sounds incredibly strange to us, but guess what? We do the same thing in more sophisticated ways. We do exactly the same thing. Think about it. How often do you see people making the move of saying, this thing is bad. Ah, oh, I feel better. I feel virtuous now. Donald Trump is a blankety blank. Nancy Pelosi is a blankety blank. Now, they may be blankety blanks. I don't know. But the, the thing is that movement of, this thing is bad. I feel better. That's where the issue is. Because it's fake virtue that doesn't demand the transformation of our own souls. You go on social media, people yelling past each other, scapegoating. Oh, this thing is bad. I feel better. That may sound trivial, but let me tell you, when the movement of scapegoating becomes full-blown, it becomes demonic. Because that's actually what's happening in, in Luke 23 that we read this morning. Think about it. The crucifixion of Jesus begins with comparison. This is not the rabbi that this guy should be. Why is he not like the other rabbis, by the way? They get offended with his teaching. And then the full movement of judgment becomes this demonic move to scapegoat Jesus, to kill him. All the while, blind to the fact that it's demonic. In fact, they believe that they're doing a service to God. Those that crucify Jesus believe they're serving God. They're blinded to what's really happening, that they're just caught up in their own judgment. Now, we live in a world full of comparison, offense, and scapegoating. You know, we can step out of this. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone that's escalating or watching a conflict that's escalating and people are accusing each other? If some person will say, you know what, actually, I can't own this whole thing, but I can own this, my contribution to it. Oftentimes, what will the other person do? They'll say, you know, yeah, and I can own this. And this whole method, this whole mechanism of judgment can be interrupted with humility. In fact, what Jesus is doing on the cross, it's the ultimate example of interrupting this movement of judgment. Jesus is actually taking on the principalities and powers of judgment and showing a different way of living that's full of humility and full of forgiveness. My friends, this is the gospel. This is, this is the good news that Jesus has made a new way for us to be human beings, that in him there is the forgiveness of sins and power to live in a new way. I mean, think about it. The first thing you do when you come to God, no matter what has happened to you or what your story is, you own your contribution. You don't judge or blame others. You own, I am a sinner in need of grace. Even our coming to God is an interrupting of the judgment cycle. 
Now, the second movement of judgment is, as I said, an internal movement. There's an external movement, and then there's an internal movement. And the internal movement starts with vows, moves to agreements, and it culminates in curses. And curses, as we'll discuss in a moment, is actually the way of contempt. I'm going to ask you to do some work here. I'm going to ask you to think about your own life and vows that you have made. First, let me say that this realm, the realm of vows, agreements, and curses is the realm of the enemy. Vows are the tactic of the enemy of our souls. Matthew 5, Jesus says, don't swear at all. Don't swear by heaven. Don't swear by Jerusalem. Don't swear at all. James says it like this. Simply let your, less, your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Anything beyond that comes from the evil one. Because vows are the work of the enemy. A vow sounds like this. It might sound like this. Well, I'll never do that again. I will never do that again. I will never be hurt like that again. I will never trust anyone like that again. Think about a child, maybe seven-year-old girl, seven-year-old boy. They have a secret, and they want to tell someone, but they, they just want to tell this one person. They elicit, they make that agreement. Don't, you, don't, you won't tell anyone, right? Don't tell anyone. They tell the secret, and then what happens? They get betrayed. Everybody finds out what their secret was. What is that child very likely to say? I'll never, that will not happen to me again. I will never reveal myself again. And these sorts of vows, even at four, five, six, seven years old, can set the course of a life. Our narratives are often set up by vows. Vows can set and shape the entire narrative of a, of a life. And in fact, many of us, some of us, have made vows as children that are still directing our lives, keeping us from that experience of more that we're longing for. Because the vows are actually rooted in judgment, unforgiveness, and keep us from the fullness that God would have for us. Now, an agreement is something that reinforces your vow. It's like another event happens. That seven-year-old girl, boy, gets older, but then they get betrayed again. It's like an agreement sounds like, see, I knew that would happen. I knew it. I knew that I shouldn't reveal myself. And then when that movement of vows and agreements blossoms fully, it becomes a life of curses. And a curse sounds like, I can only be safe if... I live in this way. I can only be safe if I never am, if I don't trust another person, if I don't ever say what I really think, if I don't allow myself to feel. That's the only way I'll be safe. And it leads to contempt because, well, you have to have contempt on yourself. If I'm only valuable, if I'm not saying what I think or not trusting another person, then I must not be worth much at all. And if you hold yourself in contempt, Guess how you're going to hold others? In contempt. Because not only do we love our neighbor as ourselves, we also hold our neighbor in contempt in the same way that we hold ourselves in contempt. I, a few weeks ago, <clears throat> I had this experience. I came home, and I was experiencing joy. And it scared me. I was experiencing joy and 
hope and life and I did something to completely sabotage it. It's not even important what I did. We all have ways of sabotaging, right? Play a video game for eight hours or numb out on food or buy something or watch pornography or whatever it might be. But after I, I talked to Becca about it, I said, I don't know why I couldn't stay in this ex- experience of, of joy, of life, of freedom. It was bothering me and I just had to sit with it for days in that sort of salty reflection. I don't even remember how it happened, but I had a memory that became a key to this experience. I, I remembered when I was really young, probably seven or eight years old, it was my birthday, I really wanted this um, helicopter that, that you looked at the box and it looked like the helicopter would fly through the air. And so I got, the, I got the toy out of the box. I started moving the levers and it didn't fly. It just had this stupid little podium that it would go up about four inches and then come back down. And I was so, I was crestfallen. I was so disappointed. And I took it upstairs to my dad. And I was, dad, this doesn't, I, it's not what I thought it was. And it doesn't fly. And I just looked at him. And I don't know why, but he didn't say anything. He just looked at me. And then I had a, I immediately had a sense of, well, what I said was, it's okay. It's great. I'll just pretend that it can fly. And I took it downstairs and I was trained, obviously, to not let my dad feel any disappointment, that I would take that on myself. And as I sat now as an almost 40-year-old man, the key turned and I realized, oh, I vowed that I would not feel anything too deeply. That I would not feel disappointment. Ooh, still life for me. That I would not feel disappointment. That I would not feel joy because it's not safe and you can't trust those emotions. And I had to actually repent of the vow that joy is not safe that deep emotions are not safe. So, you know, reality is harsh though. After I, you know, I, I, I sabotaged my joy, I entered back into my judgment that I can't trust my joys, I've gotta sabotage those. And for the next few days, I was in a world of comparison, offense, and scapegoating. I was, I was on the freeway, people would cut me off, and I would get angry in a way that I normally don't. You know, it's like reality has a harsh voice. And these laws of judgment, they're just, they're almost like laws of gravity. They will catch you up in their wake. And so, um, at the same time, God has made provision for us. God has made provision for us to move into a life of freedom and joy, and maybe a life of that power that went out of Jesus into the woman who was healed from an issue of a medical issue she had had for years. And that way is to actually repent of the judgment, to repent of the vow, to repent of the scapegoating, the blame, the life of unforgiveness. It's interesting in the Gospels, you know, we only get one story of Jesus' childhood. I find that fascinating. Don't you want to know more about what Jesus was like as a, as a child? I do. We get one story when he's 12 years old. But I think maybe that's intentional. I think maybe there's a message in that. Message in that. I think it's a message that Jesus himself 
has forgiven reality, has forgiven his childhood. He's forgiven it. But he forgives it by being a man of sorrow who's willing to enter in and touch the pain, even of the place where the vow was first made. Because that's the invitation to us, is to be people, let me tell you, if you want to live a life of joy, guess what you got to touch? Sorrow. We think of, you know, in our culture, we think, well, sorrow's over here, let's avoid that. Joy's over here, yeah, let's have that. But you know what? It's not a line. It's a circle. And the circle comes together at the top, and that's the place where joy and sorrow meet. So it's like, Marcia, yeah, bring that heavy poem. Bring the lament. Because if we want to be people of joy and actually follow Jesus, it's going to mean some heavy work for our souls. But the joy will be without limit. So, yeah, I'm, I'm making an invitation to you today that it's, it's painful to enter back into the vows and judgments we've experienced that we've made in life and repent of them. But if you want, in cart, if you want to have freedom and peace and more, you have to step into it, into a repentance and repla- a life of replacing judgment with compassion, which doesn't happen in a moment. But we can become forces of compassion for others that even where we are hurt, we can learn to see others with compassion. That's heavy work. That's real work. So I'm asking you this morning to enter in again to the process of forgiving reality. Think about it. What what do you need to forgive again this morning as you think about the nature of reality? Where do you need to allow yourself to actually feel the sting and the pain of reality that you've been avoiding? Where do you actually need to sit before God and say, My God, my God, where are you? Because I know you're here somewhere. Where do you have a judgment of reality? Maybe right now it's a person or a situation. So that's my first invitation. What does it look like for you to forgive reality? And then secondly, I'm going to extend an invitation to you to repent, to turn from. That sounds like a, repent sounds like such a religious word. It really just means to turn away and go in a new direction to turn away from vows that you've made. And I, may, I know you may not, in this moment, you may not even be clear about what that means, but would you be in a consideration? Where have you made a vow in order to keep yourself safe? And maybe your repentance will sound like, Father, forgive me that I made a vow not to trust others or you. Did not trust that you were God and could heal or keep me safe. I mean, the nature of reality is that there's times where we can't help. I mean, you really, that seven-year-old child, God bless him. There's times where we can't even seem to help making a vow. Some vows we have to do to survive. And yet at some point, we still have to turn away from the vow into the life of God. Because, man, reality will hold us accountable if we're living in judgment, even if there's really no other way that we could have walked it out. But God has made provision for us, and he undoes the curse, and he does it in the person of Jesus, and he shows us a new way of being humans. And, yes, the undoing 
of the curse may require deep lament for what was lost. So I'm just asking you into a space of consideration and end of turning. And I want to do that in a specific way. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Would you close your eyes and take a deep breath? We breathe all the time, but when we become aware of our breath, it's a reminder that God is as near to us as our breath. And I'm just going to lead you through some questions and some considerations. And if you're willing and open, would you just be present to this moment? Where do you need to forgive reality and for what? And maybe you don't even in this moment know how to do that or feel like you can, but are you willing to put words and are you willing to name what you need to forgive about reality? And just trust God with that, just the naming of it. Maybe a way you are holding reality in contempt or in judgment. And again, if you're willing, can you put words to a vow that you have made in life? Maybe that you made a long time ago. Are you willing to put words to it? What is that? What does your vow sound like? Maybe it sounds like I can't trust God. I can't trust other people. I'll not be hurt again. I'll not trust again. What is if you were going to put words to it, what does your vow sound like? Now, I want to ask you to imagine that you're holding this vow or this judgment and holding it before God. Just see yourself, maybe your hands, maybe you're holding the vow in your very hands. And imagine that God comes to you he approaches you. What does he look like? What do you see? And what does he do with the vow or the judgment as you offer it to him? How does he respond? Does he place it to the side? Does he hold it and take it in his own hands? Does he throw it behind him? What does he do with it as you offer it to him? And how does God look at you? Can you see it? What's the look on his face as he looks at you? The God of compassion. As he looks at his daughter, as he looks at his son. Can you see the God of compassion? And can you now hold even your own self with compassion? Because that's how God holds you. And again, if you're willing, in the quiet of your own heart and mind and imagination, just ask God, well, if this vow isn't true, what is true? What's the true narrative you're inviting me into? And what does God say back to you? So, God of all joy, all love, all compassion, a struggling candle you will not snuff out. God who breathes life into us, we welcome you. 
God of good news, you who are willing to touch the sorrow in order to touch the joy. You speak in our minds and our imaginations. Whatever is from you that we're hearing now, we ask you to compel us with it to walk in your way. Help us, Father, to walk this life forgiving reality even as you did. That we would be a people of freedom and that we would love others with incredible freedom. In your good name, we pray all these things. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.